we're going to give some introductory information, and this is part of, and I keep trying to point out some things about hermeneutics, if we're going to interpret a text properly and study properly, we need to have some introductory information. Uh, and so we start with that kind of thing when we come to Lamentations. And so let's raise some questions about Lamentations. Lamentations follows the book of Jeremiah, obviously, in, in, in the uh, order of our uh, English text. The book of Jeremiah was prophecy and ultimately fulfillment of the fall of Jerusalem, um, the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah. And so we saw three different invasions, and we saw, before we got through with the book, the final invasion. And basically, chapter 52 was an appendix where, as we summarized, and there's more to chapter 52 than this, but Jeremiah said, I was right. The prophecy came true. All right? The book of Lamentations follows that, not in sequence in the sense of it's written after chapter 52, but it focuses on Jerusalem after the fall. And so it's focusing on after the city had been, as the wording is, penetrated, we'll talk about that in the book of Jeremiah, the city had been penetrated, the walls had been torn down, the uh, temple has been destroyed, and during that time, or shortly thereafter, is where the book of Lamentations comes to play. So let's talk about the author. He's not mentioned in the book like we have, for example, in the epistles of Paul. I, Paul, write, well, we know then Paul was the author of the book. The Septuagint translation which is a reliable translation, as we've mentioned several times, our Lord and the apostles used that translation. The Septuagint translation names Jeremiah as the author, and that's put in the title of that. Now, that doesn't mean that is the, the author, but that gives, us, that gives some credence to uh, the idea that perhaps Jeremiah was the author. The early church fathers, that is, people contemporary with the apostles, or shortly after the apostles, and I put that in quotations, <coughs> credit Jeremiah. They thought Jeremiah wrote the book. There is similarity to the book of Jeremiah. That is the message. Uh, we saw Jeremiah weeping, for example, in Jeremiah. We see whoever this author is, is weeping as well. Now that doesn't mean that another author couldn't weep. And we'll give some evidence of that as we go along. Jeremiah was obviously familiar with writing laments uh, or funeral songs. Uh, you might turn over to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 35 just quickly, 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and uh, verse 25, and um, we're not going to spend any time with that, but Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and at the end of the verse, therefore, uh, they made it a custom in Israel, indeed, they are written in the laments. Uh, so Jeremiah obviously was uh, familiar with writing lamentations, um, whether he wrote this book or not, that principle is true. So I think there's pretty good evidence, and you're looking for this in your handout, what evidence is there that uh, whoever you think wrote the book is, is the one who wrote the book? That's the more popular view concerning the author, and we think, at least I think, probably it was Jeremiah. Um, 100% do I know that? No, I don't know that. Let's talk about the date now. The final invasion and the fall of the city was in 586 B.C., and so we saw that as we ended the book of Jeremiah. The city has been conquered. Jeremiah had said it would be. It was, and indeed his prophecy was true. The book was probably written, there is some conjecture here, in the three months between the fall of Jerusalem and Jeremiah being taken, in, uh, to, being taken to Egypt. Now the references on the screen, I'm not going to take the time to read them, but Jeremiah 39 and in verse 2 talks about the city being penetrated. 
So that was the, the invasion where the city was, was broken through. Then in chapter 41 and in verse 1 is what the insurrection against Gedaliah, remember that. And that's three months later than this penetration over here because of the dates that are given in the context. Now, furthermore, chapter 43 and in verse 6 is when he was taken to Egypt shortly after and because of uh, the uh, insurrection against Gedaliah. So, because of that, we think perhaps during that three-month period was, was, would be the time when there is this great weeping looking at the city before he's taken off to Egypt. Uh, again, there is some conjecture with reference to that. John Humphreys, in his large commentary on, not his little workbook, but his large commentary on the book of Jeremiah and Lamentation says the composition of Lamentation occurs shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem as Jeremiah preaches the funeral over the ruins of a once proud city. And so if you view the book of Lamentations as Jeremiah preaching the funeral of the city, here was a city that had every opportunity, it fell, they brought it on themselves, and what a waste that this city brought this on itself. And that is exactly what we have in the book of Lamentations. Let's shift and talk about the theme. What is the theme? Well, it's a funeral message for the city of Jerusalem. Lamentations are grief over the nation that has gone into captivity. And so if, you can, if, if our understanding, and there is some conjecture, I recognize that, uh, concerning the timing of that within that three-month period, but if that be correct, can you imagine before Jeremiah is taken by force off to Egypt, he is still in Jerusalem, and he looks around and he sees the city that he had prophesied about, and nobody listened to him, and it's in ruins, and it's in shambles, the walls are falling down, the temple is destroyed, the city has been burned, uh, people have been taken away in captivity, and... He is in mourning over that. He's shedding tears upon tears. Let's get ahead of ourselves. Chapter 116, my eyes, my eye, I weep. My eye, my eye overflows with water. Well, no wonder that was going on. And yet the book expresses hope and consolation. We're going to see that in chapter 3. Let's just get a glimpse of that. I'm not going to read all of that. Turn over to chapter 3 beginning at verse 22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Well, I want you to see there's mourning over the city and its fall, but yet there's hope uh, because his compassion fail not. Uh, look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Now, that's just the sampling of this section that I've mentioned here, chapter 3, 22 to 26 and verse 58. There is hope in the midst of all of that. So you're going to be watching, just as we did in the book of Jeremiah, not only is there this great lamentation over the collapse of a nation, but also... There is hope that is ahead. Wiersbe said concerning this book that no book in the Bible reveals the suffering heart of God over sin as does this one. I think perhaps he is correct. Now I'm interested in the literary style of the book. It's different from Jeremiah. Now that doesn't mean Jeremiah didn't write it. Because one person can write in this style and they can also write in a different style. Uh, and we see that even, for example, in the New Testament. John, in writing the Gospel of John, has many similarities to 1 John, but 1 John is quite different than John in style. And we'll talk about that later when we study 1 John. There are five mournful funeral poems. You have five chapters. You have five poems. Each chapter represents a poem. 
Now remember in Hebrew poetry, it, there is not the rhyme and the rhythm that we have in our poetry. You read it and you say, this doesn't sound like a poem at all. But it does in Hebrew poetry. And we'll talk more about Hebrew poetry in other sections when we get to, to the Psalms and to uh, Proverbs and uh, those, those books. That's also Hebrew poetry. But it doesn't have the rhyme and the meter. Quite often in Hebrew poetry, there are a number of ways in which, but there'll be a statement made and then something that says essentially the same thing but worded differently. That's part of the nature of Hebrew poetry. Now, the poems are in acrostic form, meaning that there is the letter that's taken as we would if we in our English uh, alphabet with the letter A and then uh, make a point from the letter A and the point B on down the line. But this is Hebrew. And so... Each of the 22 verses and chapters 1, 2, and 4 start with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So taking the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, we don't need notice that in English. But if you could read Hebrew and open your Hebrew Bible, you would notice, hey, this is acrostic. And so you have 22 verses. Then you have 22 verses in chapter 2. Jump over to chapter 4. You have 22 verses following the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 has three verses for each letter. So you have a longer chapter. So for a, putting that in English, for the letter A, you'd have three verses. And then for the letter B, you'd have three verses and on down the line. So chapters one through four are acrostic with chapter three having three letters per, uh, I mean, three verses per, per letter. Now, ver chapter five is not in alphabetic order. And so it is an acrostic, yeah, but it's not in alphabetic order. But so we have five funeral songs is what we have. And that's the style of the book. So it is in a, a funeral, uh, it's a dirge or it's a funeral song, it's a funeral poem. Is the, and we have five of those, is the literary style that we have. Now let's look at an outline of the book before we get to chapter one. Here is an outline of the book of Lamentation. Five poems, and so there's five points. So in chapter one, and you're looking for this in your handout, or early in your handout, what, what's the point of, I mean, a summary of chapter one, what's the summary of chapter two? We have the suffering of Jerusalem in chapter one. So the first song is about the, how Jerusalem suffers. And it, we're going to see that in, in, from several angles. Uh, Jerusalem is a lonely widow. Uh, she's suffering, she's lonely. She's looking for comfort and she finds none. Uh, all of her help is gone. She turns to her prophets. They were no help. In fact, they caused her problem. Those kinds of things we see in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, we see God's anger. We're going to look and, and watch for this when we get to chapter 2. You've got a question in your handout. Look for phrases where either the term anger or something equivalent to God's anger, his indignation, his wrath, those kinds of things are mentioned over and over. So why has all of this happened to uh, Jerusalem? Because God's anger was stirred because of her sin. And so Je Jeremiah, if our understanding be correct of who it is, after the city falls within that window of three months, he looks around and what he sees is evidence of the wrath and the anger of God. All right, chapter three, we'll get to this next time. The prophet's suffering in his plea, chapter four, the siege on Jerusalem and its cause, and then prayer and restoration. Now it's already obvious just from the title. If you haven't read a word of chapter one or two, you say, I forgot to read it, and, I'm, and so I'm going to try to get caught up. You already know this just by looking at the titles. There is obviously going to be some overlap. In other words, there's some things in chapter 1 that's going to be, again, in chapter 2. And so if you were writing five funeral songs or poems uh, about the nation of America falling, I can't imagine you re not repeating some principle from, from your first poem that you don't want to come back and mention in your second. And that happens right here in this book. 
of Lamentations. So let's focus now on chapters 1 and 2. Let's go to chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the suffering of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has suffered and suffered greatly. That's the point of chapter 1. Now again, this is in poetry form. So if you're reading this, I'm not getting all of this. Keep in mind this is in poetry form, but we're going to try to organize our material and outline it so that it makes some sense and package it together. So let's see if we can't do that. Three things now happen in chapter 1. Jerusalem is like this lonely widow. And then the next section is Jerusalem laments her condition. She's this lonely widow, and then she laments the condition that she's in, beginning at verse 12 through verse 17. Then the third section of this chapter will deal with the appeal to the righteousness of God. There's one of those brighter pictures growing out of the tragedy that we uh, see in the book. Now let's talk about her being this lonely widow. Uh, And so we'll work through several things and hit some high points. Hebrew poetry is not always easy to outline. But if you know me well, you know I'm going to find a way to outline anything that I can outline. I outline phone conversations. We're going to put it in outline form somehow. And so we're going to to try to make some sense and put some structure to this, though it's not always easy because a point may be made here and three verses later that same point is made again. So you'll see some of that as we go along. Let's talk about her being this lonely widow. How lonely sets the city that was full of people How like a widow is she? Now, I just wanted you to see that part before, if you hadn't already read your lesson, that she is like this lonely widow. Can you imagine somebody that's been in the household and she has had all of her family around and now the family is gone, her husband is dead, and she's this lonely widow sitting here. That's what Jerusalem is like. Now, notice in verse 1, let's go back to verse 1 again. Her, Her greatness is past. And so he said, how long, how lonely is she that she was full of people and how great among the nations, the princes among the provinces and, uh, uh, provinces and uh, has become a slave. In other words, here was this, this great nation of Judah, the great city of Jerusalem. How great she was, she was full of people. And I look around and the people are gone into captivity, you'll say in verse 3. They're gone. Now there's some people left, the poorest of people are left. But she, they're gone into captivity and the city's in shambles. And so it's like the prince has become a slave. Man, how things have changed. And so the greatness of Jerusalem is over. It's past. All right? Look at verse 2. She's weeping and there's no help. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She, the, and she has none to comfort her. You remember what uh, the prophets had said, not only Jeremiah, but other prophets had compared Jerusalem and Judah to to. Uh, a harlot that goes among her lovers. And the question is, where, and that is among the idols, where are her lovers now? She's wanting come. She's weeping. She's this lonely widow and she's weeping. And where are her lovers to come and comfort her? There's no help. And so the point is, she weeps and there is no help. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Egypt didn't do, wasn't any help to her. And they've become her enemies. Now look at verse 3. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. We're not talking about they were moved from one nation to another. That might not be too bad if, if, if you were taken from here and you were taken to Great Britain and you had to live there with all of the, the uh, luxury that you have in this country. You just maybe have the same thing, maybe even better. That's not what's going on. They're in servitude. 
She dwells among the nations and she finds no rest. And all her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. You're getting the picture how bad it is? Her greatness is past. She's weeping and there's no help. She's in captivity. Look at verse 4. The feast of Jerusalem are over. The roads of Zion mourn because no one comes uh, to the set feast. Her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh and the virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. You see the very city where people throng because this is where you came for your feast, your annual feast. And so the, the, the passageways and the roads to Jerusalem were packed full of people making their way for their annual feast. And the gates would be where people are coming through. And he said, you look around and the gates are desolate. The gates have all fallen down. There isn't a gate anymore. And no one's in the streets. Pretty sad. Her greatness has passed. Look at verse 5. She brought this on herself. Her adversaries have come, become her master. Her enemies prosper for the Lord has afflicted her. And you might underline, because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Why did they go into captivity? Why did the city come, become so weak? Because she brought it on herself. It's a sad picture, but she brought, did this to herself. Now, tie verse 8 with that. Let's get ahead of ourselves. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. grievously. Therefore, she's become vile. Why did all this happen? Because Jerusalem has committed such great sin. Now, that's not the only verses that mention that, but that's two. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. Uh, verses 6 and 7, she's lonely and she's mocked. Get, the, get this picture of personifying Jerusalem as this lonely widow. And she feels so lonely, she feels like there's no help. And furthermore, people are mocking her. Look at verse 6. And from the, um, from the daughter of Zion, all of her splendor has departed. Remember all that splendor? Back at verse 2, 1. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. Look at verse 7, in the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all of her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. She remembers how it used to be when this city bustled and the people came and, and we were seemingly blessed of God. I remember all those days, she says, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her and her adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. I don't know about you, but it's bad enough to have problems but then someone to mock you and make fun of you because of your problems. She's a lonely widow that's sitting around and said, look at the ruins, and, 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 and this is not what we used to be. And she is now being mocked. Now, verses 8 through 11 talk about how embarrassed she is. In other words, I'm not thinking it's presented from the standpoint that now she is feeling so embarrassed at this point. Not at this point. She, she will later. But God has embarrassed her and taking her into captivity. Now, there's some delicate things here that I'm going to be try, try to be as delicate about describing, but this is biblical language, and we're going to try to present biblical language as biblical language. Um, starting at verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become vile. All who honored her despised her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. What I'm learning about nakedness here, here's a very practical thing. Nakedness is something that should be embarrassing. This is the point. God has embarrassed her. She brought it on herself. But she's like a lonely widow here, and suddenly she's been exposed to the world. And the world has seen her nakedness. 
That's not all. Now, verse 9 is the delicate part. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. That's talking about a, a certain time of the month, and it has, people see this. That's, I'm going to leave it at that. That she's like the woman who, she's embarrassed now because people have seen what's going on at a certain time. And that's biblical language, by the way. Remember the filthy rags we talked about in the prophets? And that's not the last. He's going to mention that again in a moment. And so this is how God views someone in sin. You're like exposing your nakedness. You're like someone who's seen what's going on at this point. Now here's a phrase that's interesting at verse 9. She did not consider her destiny. You've got a question on that in your handout if you're filling that out. What does that mean? She didn't think about her future. That's something very practical in that. In other words, Jeremiah's looking around and said, you know what, this nation, this city, didn't think about the future. If, the, if she had realized and understood that the way she was living and rejecting God and rejecting the prophets, that it was going to lead to this ruin, she might not have done that. You say, well, yeah, they should have known that. Maybe we're not the ones thinking about the future. That what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm practicing, the lack of diligence... I'm not considering where it leads. Maybe it's what I'm failing to do with my kids or what I am allowing with my children. Where it's going to lead, we're not thinking of the future. That's what it says. She didn't think about the future. Therefore, her collapse is awesome. She has no comforter. Her adversary has spread his hand all over her pleasant things. In other words, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and they take the articles from the temple, the things that were so important, the gold and the silver and all of the, the utensils of the temple, he put his hands all over her pleasant things. She was violated. That may be a reference to she was touched in ways that she should not have been touched. Remember, this is part of her embarrassment. I'm not sure that's the language here. But Nebuchadnezzar came in, and his army came in, and what he did was he took things that he was not supposed to have. He wasn't supposed to put his hands on. Part of the articles, the, the gold and the silver, etc., in, in the temple. And so he violated Jerusalem and the temple, and this lonely widow has been violated. Now, her nakedness has been shown. People have seen what's going on at a certain period of, of the time, and furthermore, she's been violated. And all the people sigh, verse 11, and they seek bread. In other words, they're, they're hungry. Let's shift gears now. Let's talk about what's going on with this lonely widow. Jerusalem now laments her condition beginning at verse 12. Now, verse 12, you've heard quoted many times, is it nothing to all you who pass by? In other words, there's no sorrow like we are experiencing, Jerusalem says. Again, we're personifying Jerusalem as if Jerusalem is speaking. And people are passing by. This lonely widow is sitting over here and she's been embarrassed. She's been exposed. She's been violated. And there's nobody helping her. And people walk by and act like no big deal. And she asks, is it, does this mean nothing to you as you pass by? What's happened to me? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? For, look at verse 13, for above he, uh, from above he has sent fire into my bones and turned me back. I'm not reading every word, obviously. He has made me desolate and faint all day. Now look at verses 14 and 15. She was overtaken by someone more powerful. That's part of what she laments. The yoke of my transgression was bound. 
she said, and thrust upon my neck. And the Lord trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst, and he called assembly against me to crush my young men. In other words, uh, we, had a, we had an army and we had mighty men, but someone more powerful came in, that is Babylon, and trampled, under, uh, trampled us under and, and overpowered us. Jerusalem is lamenting her condition. We were overtaken by someone more powerful. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep my eyes, my eyes over, my eye overflows with water. Look back to Jeremiah chapter, now now that may refer to Jerusalem lamenting, and, it, and so there's a question, is that not about Jeremiah, um, or is that talking about Jerusalem, personifying Jerusalem, or I think more likely, Jeremiah is included in Jerusalem lamenting of this. Look at Jeremiah 9 and verse 1, uh, if I got the right chapter. Jeremiah chapter 9 and uh, verse 1. But Jeremiah talks about, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. We're going to see this again in chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 3 and 48 of rivers of water coming forth. Jeremiah talks about how he is, um, he and the people are lamenting. Now, look at verse 17. Before we get to the last section, we're, we're, I'm trying to finish this within a couple of minutes. That is this chapter, so we've got room for chapter 2 in the last 15 minutes. Uh, at verse 17 now, there's the cry, but no help. Zion spreads out her hands, but there's no one to comfort her. The Lord has, command, uh, has commanded concerning Jacob and those around him to become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. That unclean thing, I think, is in a reference to this, this uh, same circumstance of verse 9 that we talked about. It's a delicate subject, but it perhaps is talking about uh, the woman becoming unclean. Jerusalem has become unclean, and so Jerusalem has become unclean. But she cries to God, or she's crying out for some, for some comfort, and there is no comfort. So there's this, she, she's like a lonely widow. She's crying out uh, and laments her condition. Now, verses 18 to 22, to finish this chapter, we're just focusing on the suffering of Jerusalem. There's the appeal to the righteousness of God. Look at verse 18. God is righteous. The Lord is righteous. I have rebelled against his commandment. I would that we all had that same attitude when we sinned. God did right. I did wrong. How often sometimes, though, when we've done something wrong, well, I might, uh, I might have done wrong, but I'll tell you what. What God, that's hard, what God's asked me to do. In other words, it's kind of God's fault for making it too difficult. We need the attitude that said, God is righteous and I rebelled against his commandment. Look at verse 19. I call for my lovers, but they deceive me. My priest and my elders breathe their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. Interesting picture that she's crying out for, for, for some help. And so God is, is righteous, but I, I rebelled and... My priests were scrambling around looking for bread because they brought this on themselves. Now notice at verse, uh, verse 20, See, O Lord, I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned with me, for I have been very rebellious. Now notice in verse 21 and 22, there is a shift in the appeal. And the appeal here is in 21, let the wickedness of our enemy come before you. In other words, we did wrong. I'm admitting that. Jerusalem is saying we did wrong in this poem at least. 
but this nation that overtook us. In other words, it's a cry for deliverance is what it is. So look at verse 21. Uh, they have heard that I sigh with no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble, and they were glad at what you've done. Bring on the day that you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you, and do to them as you've done to me for all my transgression, my sign. In other words, the enemy nations, Babylon and any other nation that is against God, do to them what you did to us. And that's the plea. All right, we're through with chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the suffering of Jerusalem like a lonely widow, Jerusalem in a condition, and there is the appeal uh, to the righteousness of God. Let's shift gears now to chapter 2. Let's shift gears to chapter 2. Chapter 2 focuses on God's anger against Jerusalem. God's anger against Jerusalem. Now, one of the things I want you to watch for in chapter 2, you might highlight if, you, if you're prone to do that or underline some expressions that have to do with God's anger are something equivalent to that. You'll see the word anger in verse 1. Uh, you'll see it again, uh, again in verse 1. You'll see it in verse 3. You'll see uh, his burning indignation in verse 6. Uh, you'll see his wrath in verse 2, his fierce anger. Uh, I've already mentioned verse 3, his fury at verse 4. Those are some of the expressions. Look, look for those and underline those. This chapter focuses on his anger. So here's three things that happen. First of all, Jerusalem is covered with a cloud of God's anger, verses 1 through 10. So remember, this is not a continual thought from chapter 1 like we might have in, say, Genesis where we are, or some storyline that this is in sequence. This is a new song. This is a new poem. And so we finished one poem. We're reading another poem now. So what's the purpose of this poem? To focus on God's anger against Jerusalem. God was angry with Jerusalem. All right, let's get the picture. Notice verse 1. How, notice how he starts off. How, how sad or how bad this is. That's, a, that's the start of a funeral uh, dirge or a uh, funeral poem. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger. He is cast down from heaven to earth. The beauty of Israel, he did not, uh, and did not, uh, the beauty of Israel did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. In other words, God didn't remember Jerusalem. In other words, God didn't spare Jerusalem in the moment of his anger. That's the point. God didn't spare Jerusalem in his anger. So what, it's like God took his anger and it's like a cloud that hangs over Jerusalem. So picture that three-month period after seeing all the destruction around. Jeremiah looks around. I see the cloud of God's anger hanging over the city. That's what brought all this on. What, what angered God? It was their sin. All right, notice verse 3. Let's jump down to verse 3. Uh, he cut off in fierce anger every uh, horn of Israel, the strength. The horn stands for strength. And so the, the strength of Israel was cut off because of his anger. He drew back his right hand. That is, God drew back his right hand, and that is, he didn't spare uh, his uh, from the enemy. In other words, he could have taken care of the enemy, but God didn't do that. Um, let's drop down to verse 4. I'm just focusing on his, uh, he's poured forth his fury like a fire. Drop down to verse 6. In his burning indignation, at the end of the verse, uh, he has spurned the king and, his, and the priest. So we see over and over his burning indignation, his fury, his wrath, his anger was poured out on the city. So God's anger, his fury, his indignation is poured out. Now, anger brought destruction. So let's go back to verse 2 and see what happened in verses 2 to 9. Now, we're going to list some things, and you're looking for this in your handout. Uh, 
The Lord's anger was stirred. Look at verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the inhabitants of Jacob. In other words, he had no pity on them. When his wrath was stirred, God was ready to breathe out his wrath upon them. Now notice at verse, uh, look at verse 3. Uh, now that's not what I want. I want to, um, look at, yeah, verse 3 is what I do want. At the end of verse 3, he blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire. And I'm going I'm to get on down to verse Verse 6. What's going on in verse 6? You have a question on this in your handout. That he has done violence to his tabernacle as it were a garden, and he's destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord caused the appointed feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. His burning indignation, he spurned uh, the king and the priest. What's he talking about? In other words, the temple was destroyed, the place of the assembly, his tabernacle. God destroyed that, or God allowed it to be destroyed when, when the king of Babylon came in. And so here's, here's part of, we're right here in 2 to 9, his anger brought destruction. And what happened in that destruction? Well, the temple was destroyed. Let's go ahead, beginning verse 7. Um, the Lord spurned his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. There's the destruction of the temple. He's given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. In other words, the walls now are destroyed. So in verses 7 to 9, what happened to the city? The walls were destroyed. Um, Look at verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground and has been destroyed and broken her bars. So the gates of the city have been broken down. They're laying down on the ground now. So the, so the temple has been destroyed. The walls are all falling down. Now let's get down to verse 10. Verse 10, Jerusalem now mourns over that. So the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in deep silence and they throw dust in on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem, they bow their heads to the ground. They can do nothing but sit in sadness and, meet, uh, and uh, weep and cry and mourn over the city. That's all they can do now. You would too if you were in the city. Now let's go to verse 11 through 17. There is no comfort that can be found. So we're focusing on God's anger. When God's anger has been stirred, there's no comfort to be found. Look at verse 11. We've already mentioned this. My eyes fell with tears. My eyes fell with tears. Have you ever cried so much that you couldn't even see out of your eyes? Everything's blurry. You can't, you can't even see because you've cried so much. That's what's going on. There's no comfort can be found. My heart is troubled. My my. My liver, one translation will say, instead of bile is poured out, my innards are, are, are poured out. In other words, I, I, am, I am spilt, I am spent, is the idea. Um, now notice at verse 12 and 13, the question is raised, who will comfort? The, uh, they say to their mothers, who, uh, where is grain and wine? And they swoon or faint like the wounded. And, and so it's like children are asking their, their parents, where, where's food to be found? And there is no comfort. Look at verse, verse 13. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what will I compare you that, that I may comfort you, O virgin, uh, virgin daughter? For your ruin has spread to the, to the whole sea, and who will heal you? So what's the question? The question is, who, who's going to comfort you? Now, this is interesting, verse 14. Your prophets will be no help, and they were no help. She's looking for help. Your prophets have seen you. False and deceptive visions, they uh, have not uncovered your iniquity. In other words, your prophets didn't help you. They didn't, they didn't expose your sin, so they, you could have spared this problem. 
they deceived you and lied to you, so they brought on the problem. False teachers are no help to you. They bring on your problems rather than fixing your problems is the point he's making. All right, now notice verse 15 and 16. Other nations ridicule you. They all who pass by clap their hands and they hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Zion. And uh, they, is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Is this that great Jerusalem that they talk about being such a great city and such a great nation? And they laugh and they scorn and they clap their hands at her fall. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you and they hiss and they gnash, verse 16. And they said, we have swallowed you up. And so she is being shamed. Now notice verse 17. Here's a point to be made about verse 17. You've got a question in your handout. The Lord has done what he purposed. Powerful point. The Lord did what he said. The Lord has a plan. The Lord has a purpose. The Lord said it would be destroyed. It would be destroyed. The Lord gave a warning and he followed through on his warning. The Lord does not issue uh, um, uh, weak warnings. It's not the word I was looking for, but I'm, I'm not sure what I was looking for. But it's like a parent sometimes that, that if you heard parents that warn the child, you do that again and you're going to get it. And the child does it again. Well, if you do it again, you're going to get it. And then they do it again. Well, if you do it one more time, you're going to get it. And so their warnings are weak. God doesn't give weak warnings. God said, you do this and you're going to be destroyed. They did it and they were destroyed. The Lord did what he said. That's the point of verse 17. Now then. Let's finish this. We have just a few minutes left, three or four minutes left. So let's see if we can see this plea for mercy. Uh, since God's anger has been has stirred, get the picture that the anger is, is a cloud over the city. And there's no comfort can be found when God's anger has been stirred. Look at what all has been done. There's a plea for mercy. Now the question in verse, at the, is the last section, let's back up just for a moment. The, the question is, uh, is who's going to comfort and so now here's the question. Only God can do that. Only the Lord can help. Look at verses 18 and 19. Uh, 18 and 19. The heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, uh, let's tear, uh, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. By the way, that's a picture I take of deep contrition. You want to cry out to God, only God can help you, but there needs to be this deep contrition. Arise, cry out at the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up your hands toward Him. You want help? You're not going to find it in the false prophets. You're going to find help in the Lord. You turn to the Lord and you cry your eyes out. Cry your eyes out. Let rivers run down day and night. Deep contrition for your sin is the point. Now then... Here's the extreme suffering that they're going through. Verses 20 to 22. What kind of extreme suffering is going on? Uh, well, let's get verse 20. There's the plea. Let's get, um, I, I skipped the plea. Let's go back to verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should the, woman, should the women eat their offspring? In other words, the plea is to the Lord, spare us and show us mercy. What's going on? is there is extreme suffering. Look at verse 20. It, it, it becomes so bad, it seems that even women are eating their children. That's extreme suffering. Look at verse 20. The priest and the prophet are slain in the sanctuary of the Lord. Verse 21. People of all ages, my virgins and my young men, have fallen by the sword. 
when, when the city was invaded, there was no discrepancy of who might be killed. And look at verse 22. You have invited as, you have invited us to a feast this day, the terrors that surround me in the day of the Lord. There is no ref, uh, refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have, have been destroyed. Look around the city, there's no, there's no one left. And so what's the point of chapter 2? God's anger against Jerusalem. Jerusalem is covered with a cloud of God's anger. There's no comfort can be found. They looked to the prophets and they were no help. That is the false prophets. And so the, the only answer is turn to the Lord. And the, you need to cry your eyes out. There needs to be deep contrition before you're going to get any help from God. And that's the point. Now, there's several things to be learned, and I want to get this quickly, and then we're, we're, we're going to quit. Time is, is up. There's several lessons that we could learn from uh, these chapters, and we'll learn them as, next week as well. But here, here's three things I want to mention that we learned from Lamentations. There, there's many lessons, but these three basics. Number one is that God's warnings came true. If I didn't have any inkling of Jeremiah, but I knew Jeremiah had prophesied of destruction, and so I want to see what happened once that destruction supposedly came. What's going on? I've learned God's warnings came true. Secondly, I learned the consequences of sin are brought upon ourselves. And then thirdly and finally, the consequences of sin are great. The consequences of sin are great. And we're going to be left like this lonely widow who's seeking help if we don't turn to the Lord. We'll stop there. That's chapters 1 and 2. Next week we'll get 3 through 5. And we'll be done with Lamentations.